Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I'm trying to free your mind, Neo. But I can only show you the door. You're the one that has to walk through it. Welcome to Origins. This is a podcast encompassing stories concerning just about anything and everything. There is information, theories, news, stories, conjecture and ideas from history, geography, science, technology, language, medicine, archaeology, anything really. If you're interested in everything and anything, come along and listen and enjoy the show. Visit my website for the show notes, www.origins.info. Looking for a podcast that's more challenging, more stimulating intellectually? Well, here's the place. Sit back, relax, and enjoy. Welcome to Origins, episode 23. This episode is entitled, Snakeless in Ireland. Blame the Ice Age, not St. Patrick. And other stories that are coming up in this episode include, Tower Lions May Help Resurrect Extinct African Breed, Dickens' Work Goes Under the Hammer, and A First Movie of a Tsunami on the Sun. From the damninteresting.com website comes the tale of the extraordinary astrologer, Isaac Bickerstaff, and a fossil faeces is the earliest evidence of North American humans. The oldest gold artefact in the Americas has been found. The design and mystique of the Japanese school uniform is looked at, and scientists have managed to create material only one atom thick. The origins of menopause, why do women outlive fertility, and ten surprising results of global warming, and some word origins from the wordorigins.org website. Sit back, relax, and enjoy. may help resurrect extinct African breed. And this comes from the National Geographic News, and it's written by James Owen. 
an extinct breed of lion from North Africa, was held at the Tower of London in medieval times, a new study shows. A pair of skulls unearthed from the tower's moat in the 1930s belong to Barbary lions, a subspecies that has since died out in the wild. The discovery raises the possibility that descendants of Barbary lions may still survive in captivity, which could help efforts to resurrect the dark-maned breed, researchers say. The lion's North African roots were revealed by analysis of mitochondrial DNA, a genetic marker passed between females. What's more, the DNA reveals that the two animals represent the oldest confirmed Barbary lion remains in the world, the study team said. The findings are reported in the current issue of the journal, Contributions to Zoology. Radiocarbon dating of the lion's skull in 2005 indicated that the two male cats first came to the tower in the 13th century, the oldest being dated to between AD 1280 and 1385. At that time the palace housed the royal menagerie, a diverse collection of exotic animals owned by the reigning monarch. Carcasses of dead animals from the menagerie were likely thrown into the moat, where they became buried in silt, said study team member Richard Sabin of the Natural History Museum in London. The environment preserved the skulls remarkably well, allowing genetic samples to be taken, Sabin said. The DNA analysis supports historical evidence suggesting that Barbary lions had an ancient presence in Europe, he added. We know that the Romans were exploiting the short distance across the Mediterranean to North Africa to take animals for gladiatorial games and exhibitions, he said. The Barbary lion population had been exploited for at least a couple of thousand years. It was quite easy for people to nip over from Italy, Spain and Portugal to pick them up. The last reported Barbary lion in the wild was shot in the Atlas Mountains in the northwest of Africa in 1922, Sabin said. Since then, hopes of reviving the subspecies have focused on captive lions, especially those showing signs of the Barbary's most distinctive feature, a noticeably long, dark mane. Because we have these good genetic samples from known purebred Barbary lions, we can compare DNA from those ancient specimens to the ones that potentially are still alive in Sioux today, Sabin said. There may be descendants of them still in the UK in zoos and wild animal parks, but this is something that would need to be ascertained through genetic study. Nobuyuki Yamaguchi of the University of Oxford's Wildlife Conservation Research is leading efforts to trace potential Barbary survivors. Yamaguchi, who co-authored the new study, says that to date no living Barbary lions have been confirmed in captivity, despite various rumours to the contrary. While he says the Tower of London find doesn't directly assist his search, he hopes it might help widen the net. For example, once many people knew that a DNA test would be available for checking if a lion might be a Barbary, Museums and zoos may want to carry out the test, he said. In this context, our recent works can provide the key if people would like to open the door. Lions have been known to breed well in captivity, even when kept in unsuitable conditions, such as those before the 20th century, Yamaguchi noted. 
Therefore, it is natural for people to consider that there must be some zoo lions today that carry the Barbary blood, he said. The long-term aim, he added, is to return the lion to part of its former range in North Africa. From the bbc.co.uk website, a Dickens work is to go under the hammer. The largest auction of Charles Dickens's works for more than three decades is expected to fetch around $2 million at Christie's in New York. The collection includes a special edition inscribed to novelist George Eliot and a page of the original manuscript of the Pickwick Papers. Some 200 items owned by Hollywood TV mogul William Self are being auctioned. Tom Leckie, head of books and manuscripts at Christie's New York, described the collection as amazing. These are books that would have been passed through the great novelist's hands and into the hands of his fellow actors and artists, Mr Leckie told the BBC. The collection includes 13 presentation copies inscribed by the author to another person. One of these, an edition of Oliver Twist, dedicated by Dickens to his close friend William Harrison Ainsworth, is expected to fetch as much as $300,000. The 208 items going under the hammer come from the William Self Library, Part 1, the Kenyan Starling Library of Charles Dickens. For the next article, you may want to refer to the show notes at www.origins.info and on this website there is a video of the tsunami on the sun. It's in black and white, but it's, it's really quite distinctive and, and quite easy to watch. Uh, this article is written by Paul Rincorn and it's from the bbc.co.uk website and it's the first movie of a tsunami on the sun. Astronomers have captured the first footage of a solar tsunami hurtling through the sun's atmosphere at over a million kilometres per hour. The event was captured by NASA's twin stereo spacecraft designed to make 3D images of our parent star. Naturally, this type of tsunami does not involve water. Instead, it is a wave of pressure that travels across the sun very fast. Details were reported at the UK National Astronomy Meeting in Belfast. In a solar tsunami, a huge explosion near the Sun, such as a coronial mass ejection or flare, causes a pressure pulse to propagate outwards in a circular pattern. Last year's solar tsunami, which took place on 19th of May 2007, lasted for about 35 minutes, reaching peak speeds about 20 minutes after the initial blast. Co-author David Long from Trinity College in Dublin, in Ireland, commented, The energy released in these explosions is phenomenal. About two billion times the annual world energy consumption in just a fraction of a second. In half an hour, we saw the tsunami cover almost the full disk of the sun, 
nearly a million kilometres away from the epicentre. His colleague, Dr Peter Gallagher, who is also from the TCD, the Trinity College, said the shockwave moved out exactly like a tsunami on Earth. A series of troughs and crests in pressure causes it to propagate outwards. But on the sun, we have hot gas, he explained. When I'm talking to someone in a room, my voice is carried by pressure waves in the gas that's between us. It's much the same on the sun. However, it was not exactly the same, Dr Gallagher added, because on the sun, magnetic fields also help the waves along. The phenomenon is therefore known as a magnetoacoustic wave. Solar tsunamis were originally discovered by the SOHO spacecraft almost a decade ago. However, the observations did not fit at all well with theory. The problem was that the waves were travelling too slowly. After the two stereo spacecraft launched in 2006, scientists were able to get images of the Sun at a much higher rate than was possible with SOHO. And when they observed a solar tsunami again last year, their observations matched theoretical predictions. We found that the speed was probably twice as fast as we had previously thought, Dr Gallagher told BBC News. We've seen from this set of observation that if the time interval between images is too long, it's easy to underestimate the speed that the waves are moving. With SOHO, the researchers were only able to take images in the upper section of the corona, the outer part of the sun's atmosphere. Stereo's Extreme Ultraviolet Imager, or the EUVI, instruments monitor the sun at four wavelengths which allowed astronomers to see how the wave moved through different layers of the solar atmosphere. We were able to show for the first time that this wave actually propagates almost all the way from the surface of the Sun to high up in the Sun's atmosphere, said Dr Gallagher. The researchers even saw the pressure wave bouncing off irregular regions on the Sun's atmosphere, generating reflections or diffraction patterns exactly as tsunamis have been observed to do on Earth when they crash against land. And there's quite a few good illustrations on this website, as well as the uh, movie of the tsunami on the sun, so it is worth a look. Much of the music for today's podcast comes from the Podsafe Music Network and they can be found at music.podshow.com. If you enjoy this podcast called Origins... It would be greatly appreciated if you could recommend it to your friends and relations and maybe people at work or anyone else who you think may be interested in the podcast. It does help to bring the circulation numbers up, which have just dropped off slightly lately, and it helps to keep me motivated to keep producing this show. If you could do it, it would be greatly appreciated. Christopher Putman 
writing for the damninteresting.com website, has the story of the extraordinary astrologer, Isaac Bickerstaff. Teetering between its medieval past and the Age of Reason, early 18th century London was an environment in which the ancient practice of astrology held wide appeal. No astrologer was more influential than John Partridge, a part-time cobbler and quack whose Merlinus almanac delivered a healthy sense of impending doom to thousands of discerning readers each year. As with all astrologers, Partridge's predictions had a habit of being vague, non-committal and wrong. Nevertheless, his position as a leading astrologer and physician went largely unchallenged among a London society, eager to find order and meaning in its world. All of that was about to change in January of 1708. In that month, a short almanac under the name Predictions for the Year 1708 was published across the city by a previously unheard-of astrologer identifying himself as Isaac Bickerstaff, Esquire. The paper was written, the author claimed, to prevent the people of England from being farther imposed on by vulgar almanac makers. Such boastful tirades were nothing new. What made Bickerstaff's publication unusual was that he seemed to have the results to back himself up. Following his opening rant, he moved into a long list of strikingly bold and precise predictions, unlike anything that had been seen before. Beginning the list was this, My first prediction is but a trifle. It relates to Partridge, the almanac maker. I have consulted the stars of his nativity by my own rules, and find he will infallibly die upon the 29th of March next, about eleven at night, of a raging fever. Therefore I advise him to consider of it and settle his affairs in time. Words of Bickerstaff's pamphlet quickly spread across London. Although astrologers, Partridge among them, were notorious for predicting the deaths of notable people each year, none dared to name a specific time frame or to target one of their own. The almanac reached far enough to be read and burned by the Portuguese Inquisition, while Partridge fanned the flames with a harshly written reply to Bickerstaff. It read in part, His whole design was nothing but deceit. The end of March will plainly show the cheat. Some wondered if the entire commotion was a joke by Bickerstaff, but the motivation for such a thing was hard to imagine. If he were false he would be exposed and forgotten in just a few short weeks. In the meantime, all of London sat in anticipation. And incredibly, on the 30th of March, word of Partridge indeed did arrive. A letter written to an unnamed lord entitled The Accomplishment of the First of Mr Bickerstaff's Predictions began to circulate around the city. In it, an anonymous man, employed in the revenue reported sitting at Partridge's bedside on the evening of March 29. Partridge, he recalled, had fallen ill some three days earlier and was by then beyond hope. In his final hours he had confessed to being a fraud and named Bickerstaff's prediction as the self-fulfilling prophecy that had put him in this state. Finally, he had succumbed to his fever at 7.05pm 
just four hours off the time predicted by Bickerstaff. The news left London in a state of shock and wonder. At the same moment it had lost one of its oldest and most respected almanac writers. The city had gained what was surely the first indisputably genuine astrologer in history. The implications were staggering. It's likely that no one was as surprised to hear the news as John Partridge. For Partridge, as it happened, was alive and well, having spent the night of March 29 smugly celebrating his victory over the fraud, Isaac Bickerstaff. Word of his death became widespread on the morning of April 1, making it apparent that Partridge had been the victim of one of history's grandest all-fool's day pranks. But Partridge's ordeal was only beginning. It's reported that he woke up on the morning of his death to the sound of the church bell announcing his passing. Before long he was visited by an undertaker looking to prepare his home, and later by the church sexton seeking orders for the funeral sermon. Throughout the day a string of mourners, funeral workers and church officials were shooed from the cobbler's door. It wasn't difficult to piece together what had happened. The letter announcing Partridge's death had, of course, been written by Isaac Bickerstaff himself, as he had planned to do from the very start. But this one authentic-sounding account was more than enough to convince London of the news. Partridge's name was removed from the station's register, making him essentially legally dead, and crowds of his fans held vigils outside his home. Meanwhile, Partridge's published responses, asserting his continued functioning, went largely ignored. The public had decided he was dead, and the words of a dead man obviously couldn't be trusted. Some Londoners seemed to genuinely believe the good astrologer was deceased, while others merely revelled in tormenting him. Partridge would frequently be stopped on the streets for inquiries into how his widow was coping, or to be chided for the lack of decency to be properly buried. The old astrologer had no shortage of enthusiastic enemies willing to perpetuate the myth of his death, and the more literally inclined among them, some the past victims of Partridge's own predictions, set about printing additional denials and confirmations of his passing, adding to the confusion. Some of these forgeries were released under Partridge's own name, making it difficult to separate his genuine protests from the comically enhanced accounts of his impostors. What is clear is that the hoax plagued Partridge for the rest of his life. As a preface to all his future public dealings, he would invariably need to argue, sometimes unsuccessfully, that he was the real John Partridge and that he wasn't dead. Even among those who knew he was alive... Partridge had become something of a living joke, so that he was unlikely to be taken seriously any longer as a sober dispenser of astrology or medicine. Publication of his almanac ceased, and while he was far from ruined, the Bickerstaff incident essentially marked the end of Partridge's life as a public figure. He spent the rest of his days trying to discover the true identity of Isaac Bickerstaff, but to no avail. The answer that eluded Partridge was not lost to history. It was eventually uncovered that Isaac Bickerstaff was a pseudonym for none other than the legendary author and cleric Jonathan Swift. 
In the years before writing such classic works of satire as Gulliver's Travels and A Modest Proposal, Swift amused himself by terrorising his friends and enemies with elaborate pranks on All Fool's Day, his favourite holiday. Not a fan of charlatan physicians and astrologers to begin with, Swift had taken a special interest in John Partridge over some sarcastic remarks the old cobbler had made about Swift's employer, the Church of England. Swift publishes Bickerstaff one last time in 1709 with a letter titled A Vindication of Isaac Bickerstaff. In it, he outlined a series of elegant arguments to prove that Partridge was indeed dead. Among them, he reasoned that it was sure no man alive ever writ such damned stuff as the tripe printed in Partridge's almanacs, and that Partridge's wife had been heard to swear that her husband had neither life nor soul in him. Therefore, Swift continued, if an uninformed carcass walks around, still about, and is pleased to call itself Partridge, Mr. Bickerstaff does not think himself any way answerable for that. Swift had by now abandoned all pretense of seriousness, but it no longer mattered. In the end, half of Swift's prophecy came true. John Partridge did eventually die. The precise date fell somewhere around 1715, putting Swift's prediction off by a mere 62,000 hours. The blink of an eye on fate's great cosmic scale. Partridge's legacy included an impressive assortment of publications, titles and honours, but he would be remembered for nothing better than the epitaph written for him by Isaac Bickerstaff Esquire in 1708. Here, five foot deep, lies on his back a cobbler, starmonger and a quack, who to the stars in pure good will does to his best look upward still. Don't forget that I do a second podcast called Bizarre Bizarre and it's a light-hearted look at life through stories found on the internet and elsewhere. They may be strange, unusual, bizarre or heartwarming stories. Bizarre Bizarre can be found on iTunes and Podcast Alley and Podcast Pickle and any other of those good podcasting websites. Don't forget it's Bizarre Bizarre, all one word, B I Z A R. R-E-B-A-Z-A-A-R David Woolman, writing for the National Geographic News website, reports on some fossil faeces that are the earliest evidence of North American humans. It's no load of crap. Scientists have discovered the earliest evidence of humans in North America in 14,300-year-old fossilised faeces. The discovery of the preserved scat fragments, known as coprolites, levels a major blow against the popular Clovis first theory of how people first came to the Americas. Since the summer of 2002, University of Oregon archaeologist Dennis Jenkins 
and his research team have uncovered about 700 coprolite samples from a group of bone-dry caves in the desert of central Oregon, including several from humans. After repeated radiocarbon dating and DNA analyses, the scientists concluded that the oldest of the human-produced material was deposited at least a thousand years before the so-called Clovis culture, according to a paper appearing in this week's issue of the journal Science. The popular Clovis first model, named for the New Mexico town where artefacts of a certain type were first found, holds that humans arrived in North America via the Bering Land Bridge that once connected Alaska to Asia. They then walked southward through an ice-free corridor during a period of glacial retreat. For a long time that model was king, ensconced in countless high school textbooks. But in the 1990s an ancient settlement at Monteverde, Chile was found to be 14,500 years old. Monteverde posed a problem for the original theory, because the ice-free corridor hadn't formed by 14,500 years ago. Monteverde posed a problem for the original theory, because the ice-free corridor hadn't formed by 14,500 years ago. Travellers must have arrived some other way, and at an earlier date. But Monteverde remained an isolated case. People who don't like Monteverde said, well, it's only one site and we need to replicate that, explained Don Grayson, professor of anthropology at the University of Washington. The importance of that find at Oregon's Paisley Caves is that this is that second site. What's more, the researchers have done exquisite radiocarbon dating. It's clearly older than Clovis, Grayson said. It's not the first claim to fame for Oregon's Paisley Five Mile Point Caves, which in the 1930s were the site of extensive excavation. At the time, archaeologists claimed to have found secure evidence of human artefacts alongside the remains of extinct mammals. No one believed it, and they were right not to, Grayson said, because the mythology was flawed. Jenkins and his group went back to Paisley to see if there was still material worth excavating and to do the job right, he said. Jenkins said that in the past, Researchers had made several claims about pre-Clovis sites, but they were all proven wrong. I wanted to be really cautious, because this site is simply too important, he said. To verify that the coprolites they found were human and date accurately, Jenkins enlisted DNA experts to conduct multiple tests on the samples. Results indicated that the people in those caves were of the Native American founding genetic groups, or haplogroups A2 and B2. This means researchers must recalibrate when humans first migrated to the New World, Jenkins said. In his lab in Eugene, Oregon, Jenkins opens a drawer to show one of the samples. The plastic bag is labelled with a bunch of numbers and letters a meticulous coding system for tracking which cave the sample came from and where and from what depth it was excavated. The coprolite itself looks like a hardened clump of brown mud of a um, familiar shape. For archaeology, coprolites are ideal remains, Jenkins said. Bones can be controversial, 
because indigenous people may take offence to excavation. Bones also calcify over time, making it difficult to extract viable DNA. In contrast, no one takes offence to examining stool samples, which are filled with cellular material shed by the harsh environment of the colon. You don't think of it, Jenkins said, but you're leaving behind genetic signatures every morning. The University of Washington's Grayson added, no one would have predicted that the next Monteverdi would be based on turds. Coming up, writing for the LiveScience.com website, Andrea Thompson has the story of the oldest gold artefact in the Americas that has been found. A necklace of gold and turquoise coloured beads at an ancient hunter-gatherer burial site in the Andes Mountains is the oldest crafted gold artefact known in the Americas and challenges the idea that only complex societies could produce such displays of wealth and prestige. The nightbead necklace was found at the base of an adult's skull in a grave at Gisquermoto, a primitive hamlet once occupied by a group of hunter-gatherers near Peru's Lake Titicaca. The burial site dates to between 2155 to 1936 BC before more advanced societies such as the Chavan, Moshe and Inca flourished in the region. Gold and other finery were symbols of wealth and status in these societies, as they still are in ours. Gold is certainly one of those things in human history that has attracted the eye, said Mark Allendorfer of the University of Arizona, the leader of the team that found the necklace. People see it as something unique and different. But such rich adornments hadn't been documented by archaeologists in more primitive societies. The discovery of the necklace, detailed in the March 31st issue of the journal Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, suggests that these primitive people were in the middle of the transition to a more structured agrarian society and that their metalworking abilities may have been underestimated. This is, for us, signalling this interesting social process that's really part of a dramatic transformation towards some kind of social inequality, Alan Durfer said. After carefully extricating the beads of the necklace from the soil, Alan Durfer and his team arranged the beads on a string as the team thinks the necklace likely looked, with long cylindrical gold beads interspersed with small circular beads made of a turquoise-coloured mineral. Though the necklace seems to have a planned design, the craftsmanship is still crude. It would be a few hundred years before dedicated metalworking craftsmen emerged. This isn't fine work by any means, Allendurfer said. 
The method Alan Durfer suspects the original maker used was simple. A gold nugget about an inch or so long would have been hammered with a stone pestle and bowl to flatten it. And when you get that thing flat, the next stage of the process seems to be that you would find some resistant tubular object and simply begin wrapping this thin piece of gold around that wooden object and keep pounding it until it's the tubular shape that the beads have, Alan Durfer told Live Science. This is not hard to do, but it did take some thinking and care and foresight in order to make it properly, he added. The beads were so easily pounded into shape because these are nuggets that were 93 to 95% pure elemental gold. And elemental gold is really soft, Alan Durfer explained. The gold's exact origin is uncertain, but native gold deposits are found in Peru about 125 miles away from the burial site. The discovery of gold jewellery in such an early site was a surprise to Alan Durfer. Though people have been adorning themselves since before even this early society, gold bling wasn't thought to have developed until much later. Everything in the New World that we know about it in terms of where gold is used is always in the context of socially complex peoples, Alan Durfer said. The people who dwelled at Jiske Umoto had not fully settled down, they were hunter-gatherers who stored some food and had begun to domesticate some tubers and grains. These folks are right in the middle of the process of becoming fully sedentary. So, in other words, they're transiting from being mobile hunter-gatherers at some frequency to being people who are being mostly sedentary, Alan Durfer said. Previously, anthropologists have thought that the requirements for the social emergence of a craft tradition, such as jewellery making, included a more secure economic base and complex culture. The use of gold by this group at Jiske Ukmoto indicates a society that was just beginning to show signs of developing an elite class. There weren't necessarily clear leaders with absolute authority, but they had some kind of prestige within the society, Alden Durfer thinks. These are people who are using this gold as a means by which to enhance their prestige and their status, and to kind of push themselves forward by the kind of contacts they have made with others to show, I'm an important person, you should trust me, you should listen to me, Alden Durfer said. So clearly... This did function as a personal adornment for this person, but the fact that it's so valuable and so rare and so unique, that says a lot about the person that it was buried with, or the social group to which they belonged, he added. Following article, The Design and Mystique of the Japanese School Uniform, comes from the pingmag.jp site, and it would be worth a visit to this website at some stage through the show notes just to get a look at the uniforms being discussed in the reading. UK, Malaysia and Ireland have nice school uniforms. But how come Japanese school attire seemingly takes it to another level? 
leaving the students looking like little sailors and marching band leaders. Having worked as a public school English teacher in rural Fukushima and downtown Tokyo, I've been amazed by the variety of uniforms, as well as the ways students customise them as far as they are allowed. PingMag shows you interesting details in fashion and the social performance that accompany this apparel to a point where the traditional Japanese school uniform has developed beyond the schoolyard and into pop culture. History The school uniform, Seifuku in Japan, started over a hundred years ago in the Meiji period, according to the Tombo Uniform Museum. First, a more formal kimono, shirt and hakama combination was selected by the Ministry of Education to escalate the profile of students. Later in this era, however, as Japan began to embrace things Western, the hakama set was replaced with a black or navy garakan jacket and slacks. The garakan school uniform jacket was modelled specifically after state military uniforms, which themselves emulated the uniforms of Prussian military cadets because the Prussian army was so strong at the time. The uniforms had a high stiff collar and brass buttons up the neck, kind of like marching band leader meets men in black. Dark slacks, belt, dark shoes and sometimes a flat round black cap with a flat top completed the ensemble. Sailors and Cadets In 1920, a woman's school in Fukuoka began to use a sailor suit uniform. It had a triangular scarf and low-cut skirt and was modelled after the British Navy uniform used at the time since the headmistress, Elizabeth Lee, apparently had lived in Britain. This also became popular because of Britain's strength as a naval power at the time. Despite some modifications to the Seifuku over the years as well as a move towards blazers at some schools, the basic design remains the same at many middle schools and high schools throughout Japan. However, after World War II, many elementary schools stopped using uniforms altogether. Roles of the uniform for students, of course, the uniform serves to link them to their schools and reasserts their collective identity in Japanese society as students. As Pierre Bordeaux has mentioned, fashion is important in giving everyone a sense of one's place. As well, since school uniforms differ between schools in the use of scarves or black slacks, for example, the students can instantly recognise students from other schools. Yet within the school itself, uniforms remove the messages of social and economic status carried in apparel, according to a study at Southeastern Louisiana University. One could argue that uniforms prevent students from expressing themselves through clothes. Interestingly enough, they have found ways to make their attitude or habits known through their uniforms. For example, in many schools, rebellious, cool boys often left the top buttons of their high neck collar unbuttoned or wore colourful belts with their otherwise all-black uniforms. Some also grow out their hair to match the latest J-pop star 
although many were forced to chop their hair short again before taking the brutal high school and university entrance examinations. A recent PBS report similarly explained that girls often use colourful shoelaces, bright hair accessories or attach character keychains or charms to their zippers. Others wear rebelliously puffy knee-high socks or hike their skirts up to shocking heights in order to identify with a particular group of people. On a different note, the uniforms play a symbolic role for students in professing first love. Upon graduating high or middle school, girls will go up to their crush and ask for his die-nye button, the second button down on his uniform jacket. If the boy has similar romantic feelings for the girl, he will remove this button, the button closest to his heart, and give it to her. Uniform Fashionistus Furthermore, as one Japanese student told me, for fashion-conscious parents and children, the school uniform can often be used as a fashion statement, if not a symbol of a family's wealth or good taste. Local fashion designers such as Hane Mori have launched their own version of the school uniform in the past, while international labours such as Benetton have announced plans to create uniforms especially for the Japanese market. Takashi Tsukada of Hane Mori Associates told me that their uniforms have been popular with parents and schools due to their traditional classic design. They trust her designs to be noble, not too trendy. This is a relief to the parents, he said. He also noted that for the school, using high-quality school uniforms were one way to attract new students. Beyond the schoolyard Yet, when you visit Japan, you notice the uniform. Notably, the girls' sailor suit uniform everywhere. In comics, on billboards, on TV shows. There are even shops selling cheap knockoffs of the school uniform. Why are they so popular? One possible reason is that over time these uniforms have become a nostalgic symbol of a more carefree youth. A sleepy salaryman can see a student wearing the exact same uniform he once wore and is reminded of a happier, simpler time when days were spent on homework and sports practice rather than at the office. Since the uniform is the symbol of school, Comics such as The Prominent Sailor Moon, games such as Paper Man, or TV series such as Waterboys, or the schoolgirl drama Life, use it as a prominent theme. Symbol of Beauty As a teacher, a thing that you notice is that students, especially high school girls, wear their uniforms all the time, even on weekends, when school is out and wearing uniforms isn't necessary. Why? A New York Times article claimed that Japanese teenagers are acutely aware that, because of their youth, they are a sought-after brand in a brand-conscious society, implying that students wear their uniforms often in order to flaunt their youth. To test this theory, I asked around a bit. Molly Elgin, an English teacher in Fukushima, noticed high school girls in Fuku City wearing uniforms even though their local high school did not require students to wear uniforms. When asked why they wore them anyway, the students explained that it was considered cute to wear them. The analysis on our part 
was that the images of schoolgirls in uniform are so prevalent it is emphasized as the pinnacle of beauty. So the girls want to wear their uniform to fit that idealized beauty standard, Elgin assumed. On the other hand, Elgin also noticed that her junior high school students often wore their uniforms outside of school as well. But for them, it was a laziness factor. It was easier to wear a uniform than to pick an outfit of their own to wear, she stated. I went around the corner of Ping Mag headquarters in Harajuku to a nice uniform shop. There, Shohori Hata, a clerk at Konomi School Goods Shop, said that students wear their uniform on the weekends because they often have to go to extracurricular activities where they have to be in proper attire. The future. As schools merge and student population numbers drop, the market for uniform sales companies does not look so great. Back to Takashi Tuskada of Hanei Morai Associates. He stated that since parents are having fewer children, they are willing to spend more money on their kids' uniforms than before, making some interesting sales opportunities for uniform manufacturers. To attract parents, companies have been adding some interesting new gimmicks to their uniforms. Tsukada recalls going to a uniform trade exhibition and seeing many new devices. A uniform skirt with an elastic snap device, which would automatically snap a heightened skirt back to a lower, more modest length. Uniform slacks with a metal clip that would prevent boys from wearing their pants too low. Shirt tails and button openings embroidered with the school's name so that if untucked or unbuttoned, the uniform would reveal the school's name and thus embarrass the students. A while ago, one company even started making Japanese uniform jackets equipped with a GPS system, allowing parents to locate their children at all times. As symbols of youth and tokens of school-age identity, uniforms will undoubtedly remain an evergreen of the academic and pop culture of Japan and surely outlive society's changes. And coming up from the telegraph.co.uk website, from Roger Highfield, their science editor. Scientists create material one atom thick. The foundations of the universe have been glimpsed in Manchester by scientists who have created the thinnest possible material. Flat parallel sheets of carbon atoms in the graphite of pencil lead have been peeled apart by the scientists to yield a single atom thick sheet that has peculiar properties which made the fundamental feat possible. This new material, called graphene, is exciting physicists worldwide because it provides the wherewithal to probe the workings of the universe and without the need for exotic equipment such as the 4.5 billion pound atom smasher being readied for use near Geneva. 
Today in the journal Science, Professor Andre Jaime of Manchester University and his colleagues at the University of Minho in Portugal say they have used graphene to measure an important and enigmatic fundamental constant of nature, the fine structure constant. Working with Raoul Nair and Peter Blake, he made large suspended membranes of graphene so that one can easily see light passing through this thinnest of all materials. The 2.3% of light that is absorbed could then be used to calculate the constant, which shows the interaction between very fast moving electrical charges in the material and light, and it is close to 1,137. This is one of the exact numbers, so-called fundamental or universal constants, such as the speed of light and the electrical charge of an electron, that play a crucial role in making the cosmos the place it is. Among them, the fine structure constant is arguably most mysterious, says Professor Jaime, who discovered graphene with Dr. Kostya Novoselov a few years ago. Change this fine-tuned number by only a few percent and the life would not be here because nuclear reactions in which carbon is generated from lighter elements in burning stars would be forbidden, said Professor Jaime. No carbon means no life. Researchers say the simplicity of the Manchester experiment is truly amazing, as measurements of fundamental constants normally require sophisticated facilities and special conditions. We were absolutely flabbergasted when realised that such a fundamental effect could be measured in such a simple way. One can have a glimpse of the very foundations of our universe just looking through graphene, says Professor Jaime. Graphene behaves as if the electrical current within it is not carried by normal electrons but by charged particles with no mass at all. Scientists call them Dirac fermions and love to study them, said Professor Jaime. The odds are that graphene can be used to make ballistic transistors, ultimately faster than any current technology. A ballistic transistor is one in which electrons can shoot through without collisions like a bullet, he says. Graphene continues to surprise beyond the wildest imagination of the early days when we found this material, he adds. It works like a magic wand. Whatever property or phenomenon you address with graphene, it brings you the answers as if by magic. Professor Jaime is also known for his earlier use of magnetic fields to levitate frogs, and his creation of the dry adhesive that is inspired by the same principle that enables a gecko to crawl along ceilings. And our feature story for today comes from the news.nationalgeographic.com website and it's written by James Owen from London. Snakeless in Ireland? Blame the Ice Age, not St Patrick.
During St Patrick's Day, most revellers won't remember the patron saint of Ireland for his role as a snake killer. But legend holds that the Christian missionary rid the slithering reptiles from Ireland's shores, as he converted its peoples from paganism during the 5th century AD. St Patrick supposedly chased the snakes into the sea after they began attacking him during a 40-day fast he undertook on top of a hill. An unlikely tale, perhaps, yet Ireland is unusual for its absence of native snakes. It's one of only a handful of places worldwide, including New Zealand, Iceland, Greenland and Antarctica, where Indiana Jones and other snake-averse humans can visit without fear. But St Patrick had nothing to do with Ireland's snake-free status, scientists say. As Keeper of Natural History at the National Museum of Ireland in Dublin, Nigel Monaghan has trawled through vast collections of fossil and other records of Irish animals. At no time has there ever been any suggestion of snakes in Ireland, so there was nothing for St Patrick to banish, Monaghan says. So, what did happen? Most scientists point to the most recent Ice Age, which kept the island too cool for reptiles until it ended 10,000 years ago. After the Ice Age, surrounding seas may have kept snakes from colonising the Emerald Isle. Once the ice caps and woolly mammoths retreated back northward, snakes returned to the northern and western Europe, spreading as far as the Arctic Circle. Britain, which had a land bridge to mainland Europe until about 6,500 years ago, was colonised by three snake species, the venomous adder, the grass snake and the smooth stake. But Ireland's land link to Britain was cut some 2,000 years earlier by seas swollen by the melting glaciers, Monaghan noted. Animals that reached Ireland before the sea became an impassable barrier included brown bears, wild boars and lynxes. But snakes never made it, he said. Snake populations are slow to colonise new areas, Monaghan added. Mark Ryan, director of the Louisiana Poison Centre at the Louisiana State University Health Sciences Centre in Shreveport, agreed that the timing wasn't right for the sensitive, cold-blooded reptiles to expand their range. There are no snakes in Ireland for the simple reason they couldn't get there, because the climate wasn't favourable for them to be there, he said. Other reptiles didn't make it either, except for one, the common or viviparous lizard. Ireland's only native reptile, the species must have arrived within the last 10,000 years, according to Monaghan. So unless St Patrick couldn't tell a snake from a lizard, where does the legend come from? Scholars suggest that the tale is allegorical. Serpents are symbols of evil in Judeo-Christian beliefs. The Bible, for example, portrays a snake as the hissing agent of Adam and Eve's fall from grace. The animals were also linked to heathen practices, so St. Patrick's dramatic act of snake eradication can be seen as a metaphor for his Christianising influence. Anyone in Ireland looking for serpents to exile would probably have to settle for the slow worm, a non-native species of legless lizard that is often mistaken for a small snake. First recorded in the early 1970s, the species is thought to have been deliberately introduced in Western Ireland in the 1960s, according to Ireland's National Parks and Wildlife Service. However, 
The reptile doesn't appear to have spread beyond a wildlife-rich limestone region in County Clare, known as the Burren. In the future, genuine Irish snakes are a possibility, Monaghan said. Pet snakes deliberately released by their owners would be the most likely source, though they wouldn't be welcome. No alien species is without risk to well-established fauna, Monaghan explained. The isolated nature of an island population makes Ireland highly vulnerable to any introduction, no matter how well-meaning or misguided. Henry Capsbrick, curator of reptiles at the Pittsburgh Zoo and PPQ Aquarium, said that Ireland's indigenous wildlife would not be prepared for snake introductions. Invasive snakes such as the brown tree snake have already wreaked havoc in Guam and other island ecosystems, he added. Nor would getting rid of any such unwanted creatures be as easy as St. Patrick made it look. I don't want to completely burst the celebrity myth of St. Patrick, he said. I want to keep some of it alive. From the Siam.com website, the website belonging to Scientific American, The Origin of Menopause. Why do women outlive fertility? New research shed lights on why women survive for decades when females in many other species die after they lose the ability to reproduce. And this story is by Tabitha Powledge. The origin of menopause has puzzled evolutionary biologists for the last half century. Three new studies attempt illumination. The real question, though, is probably not why menopause, rather it is why do women long outlive their fertility? Human ovaries tend to shut down by age 50 or even younger, yet women commonly live on healthily for decades. This flies in the face of evolutionary theory that losing fertility should be the end of the line, because once breeding stops, Evolution can no longer select for genes that promote survival. The most popular explanation, the grandmother hypothesis, argues that a generous post-reproductive lifespan makes sense if a grandmother improves the survival and reproduction of her grandchildren, thus ensuring continuation of her own genes, including genes that contribute to longevity. But sceptics say the math is askew. From an evolutionary perspective, It is hardly ever better for a woman to give up a chance to bear additional children of her own and so pass on half her genes for the sake of improving the survival of her grandchildren who carry only a quarter of her genes. The problem is that these grandmother benefits aren't big enough to ever favour stopping breeding between the ages of 40 and 50, says Michael Kent, an evolutionary biologist at the University of Exeter in England and co-author of a new study on the genesis of menopause published this week in The Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, USA. When you look at data from hunter-gatherers and other natural fertility populations, the sums just don't add up. Grandmothers do benefit their descendants, he says, but the genetic payoff is small compared to those of producing another child. 
Kant and co-author Rufus Johnson, an evolutionary biologist at the University of Cambridge in England, used game theory to argue that menopause is early cessation of reproduction that originated through reproductive conflict between generations. In most cooperatively breeding species, reproduction is suppressed in younger females, who act as helpers to older reproducing females. By contrast, they say, younger women in human social groups win the reproductive sweepstakes because the older ones stop having babies. We showed that compared to other primates that exhibit a post-reproductive lifespan, humans really stand out because there is absolutely no overlap in reproduction between generations, Kant says. Women stop breeding on average when the next generation starts to breed. This makes evolutionary sense, Kant and Johnston said, because contrary to most animals, young women tend to move to their mates' communities, where they become immigrants whose only genetic kin are their own children. There is no genetic profit in helping their mothers-in-law bear more children, because they will not share any genes with those children. But an older woman who helps her son's wife reproduce will benefit by bequeathing 25% of her genes to her grandchildren. We show that the mother-in-law's best strategy is to stop breeding, avoid competition and allow the daughter-in-law to breed and help her, Kant says. It's the first time anyone has taken the idea that humans evolved with this sex bias in dispersal and looked at the implications of how these conflicts will be resolved within the family. The mother of the grandmother hypothesis, anthropologist Kristen Hawkes of the University of Utah, says Kant and Johnston are right to focus on the intergenerational conflict. Elephants have babies in their 60s and some whales give birth in their 80s. It's clearly something selection can adjust, she says. So explaining why it hasn't in us has to be part of the story. But she disputes their claim that female bias dispersal is, in fact, the universal human ape residence pattern, pointing out that half of the young female chimps at anthropologist Jane Goodall's Gombe Stream Research Centre remain with their mothers, and that recent studies show that hunter-gatherers often live with the wife's family as well. Another explanation for menopause is the mother hypothesis, which holds that it occurs because older mothers might profit more, genetically speaking, by investing resources in their existing children than in giving birth to new ones. Researchers at the Max Planck Institute for Demographic Research in Rostock, Germany, make the case for this in the American Journal of Physical Anthropology, or the AJPA, concluding that menopause is advantageous when a woman has aged enough to face an increased risk of stillbirth, birth defects and her own death in childbirth. Researchers of a different AJPA study, based on 400 years' worth of data on births in Costa Rica, believe that postmenopausal longevity is associated with an increased number of children but a decreased number of grandchildren, a finding that supports mothers over grandmothers. We're not saying grandmothers do not provide benefits in some societies, says study co-author Lorena Madrigal, an anthropologist at the University of South Florida in Tampa, but we should not assume that one pattern fits all. Data on great ape fertility is spotty, but what there is shows that our closest relatives, 
chimps, bonobos, gorillas and even orangutans stop having babies about the same age that we do, the late 30s. The difference is they genetically die a short time later. The thing that makes us different from apes is not the age of fertility decline, it's the lack of ageing in other systems, says Hawkes. I've been saying this for a long time, and I don't think it's what anybody is hearing. Probably what a lot of people are prepared to listen to is the way Kant and Johnston have framed this, that the real question is, why do we stop reproducing so early? I think the bottom line is that, compared with our closest living relatives, we don't. from the LifeScience.com website, the 10 surprising results of global warming. You've probably heard about the global warming song and dance, rising temperatures, melting ice caps and rising sea levels in the near future. But Earth's changing climate is already wreaking havoc in some very weird ways. So gird yourself for such strange effects as savage wildfires, 25 mile long icebergs, disappearing lakes, freak allergies and the threat of long-gone diseases re-emerging. It uh, might be uh, worth a visit to the show notes to find the link to this website because as of the recording of this episode there's been 567 comments about this article and some of them are hmm, really quite interesting. So if you're interested in what other people think, have a read. Surprising result number 10 aggravated allergies. Have those sneeze attacks and itchy eyes that plague you every spring been worsening in recent years? If so, global warming may be partly to blame. Over the past few decades, more and more Americans have started suffering from seasonal allergies and asthma. Though lifestyle changes and pollution ultimately leave people more vulnerable to the airborne allergens they breathe in, Research has shown that the higher carbon dioxide levels and warmer temperatures associated with global warming are also playing a role by prodding plants to bloom earlier and produce more pollen. With more allergens produced earlier, allergy season can last longer. Got those tissues ready? Number 9. Heading for the hills. Starting in the early 1900s, We've all had to look to slightly higher ground to spot our favourite chipmunks, mice and squirrels. Researchers found that many of these animals have moved to greater elevations, possibly due to changes in their habitat caused by global warming. Similar changes to habitats are also threatening Arctic species like polar bears, as the sea ice they dwell on gradually melts away. Number 8. The Arctic in Bloom while melting in the Arctic might cause problems for plants and animals at lower latitudes, it's creating downright sunny situations for Arctic biota. Arctic plants usually remain trapped in ice for most of the year. Nowadays, when the ice melts earlier in the spring, the plants seem to be eager to start growing. 
Research has found higher levels of the form of the photosynthesis product chlorophyll in modern soils than in ancient soils, showing a biological bloom in the Arctic in recent decades. Number 7. Pulling the plug. A whopping 125 lakes in the Arctic have disappeared in the past few decades. Backing up the idea that global warming is working fiendishly fast nearest Earth's poles. Research into the whereabouts of the missing water points to the probability that permafrost underneath the lakes has thawed out. When this normally permanently frozen ground thaws, the water in the lakes can seep through the soil, draining the lake. Once researcher likened it to pulling out the plug of the bathtub. When the lakes disappear, the ecosystems they support also lose their home. Number 6. The Big Thaw Not only is the planet's rising temperature melting massive glaciers, but it also seems to be thawing out the layer of permanently frozen soil below the ground's surface. This thawing causes the ground to shrink and occurs unevenly, so it could lead to sinkholes and damage to structures such as railroad tracks, houses and highways. The destabilising effects of melting permafrost at high altitudes, for example on mountains, could even cause rock slides and mudslides. Recent discoveries reveal the possibility that long dormant diseases like smallpox could re-emerge as the ancient dead, their corpses thawing along with the tundra, get discovered by modern man. Number 5. Survival of the fittest. As global warming brings an earlier start to spring, the early bird might not just get the worm. It might also get its genes passed on to the next generation. Because plants bloom earlier in the year, animals that wait until their usual time to migrate might miss out on all the food. Those who can reset their internal clocks and set out earlier stand a better chance at having offspring that survive and thus pass on their genetic information thereby ultimately changing the genetic profile of their entire population. Number 4. Speedier Satellites A primary cause of a warmer planet's carbon dioxide emissions is having effects that reach into space with a bizarre twist. Air in the atmosphere's outermost layer is very thin, but air molecules still create drag that slows down satellites requiring engineers to periodically boost them back into their proper orbits. But the amount of carbon dioxide up there is increasing. And while carbon dioxide molecules in the lower atmosphere release energy as heat when they collide, thereby warming the air, the sparser molecules in the upper atmosphere collide less frequently and tend to radiate their energy away, cooling the air around them. With more carbon dioxide up there, more cooling occurs, causing the air to settle, so the atmosphere is less dense and creates less drag. Number 3. Rebounding Mountains Though the average hiker wouldn't notice, the Alps and other mountain ranges have experienced a gradual growth spurt over the past century or so, thanks to the melting of the glaciers atop of them. For thousands of years, the weight of these glaciers has pushed against the Earth's surface, causing it to depress. As the glaciers melt, this weight is lifting, and the surface is slowly springing back. Because global warming speeds up the melting of these glaciers, the mountains are rebounding faster.
Number two, ruined ruins. All over the globe, temples, ancient settlements and other artefacts stand as monuments to civilizations past that until now have withstood the tests of time. But the immediate effects of global warming may finally do them in. Rising seas and more extreme weather have the potential to damage irreplaceable sites. Floods attributed to global warming have already damaged a 600-year-old site, Sukhothai, which was once the capital of a Thai kingdom. And finally, number one, forest fire frenzy. While it's melting glaciers and creating more intense hurricanes, global warming also seems to be heating up forest fires in the United States. In western states over the past few decades, more wildfires have blazed across the countryside, burning more area for longer periods of time. Scientists have correlated the rampant blazes with warmer temperatures and earlier snowmelt. When spring arrives early and triggers an earlier snow melt, forest areas become drier and stay so for longer, increasing the chance that they might ignite. And finally today, some word origins from the wordorigins.org website. Bumper crop. To the modern ear, this phrase sounds odd. How did bumper become associated with agriculture? The original bumper was a large cup, filled to the brim with wine, and used for toasting. Why it is called a bumper is a bit uncertain, but could be from the idea of knocking such glasses together during a toast. From Thomas de Durfray's Madame Fickle of 1676, Full bumpers crown our blisses. Bumper eventually came to refer to anything large or abundant, from Gentleman's Magazine of 1759. In some of the Midland counties, anything large is called a bumper, as a large apple or pear. By 1885 it was associated with crop, from the Times of London of the 2nd of October. The floods will have the effect of giving a bumper ruby crop. And the source is the Oxford English Dictionary, 2nd edition. Goody two-shoes. Where does the term come from? A goody two-shoes is a prudish or morally upright person. It's an odd term to the modern ear. What do shoes have to do with being good? The term comes from the little character in the 1765 story, The History of Little Goody Two-Shoes. The pleasure she took in her two shoes, by that means obtained the name of Goody Two-Shoes. The goody in the name has nothing to do with being good. Rather, it's an abbreviated form of good wife, the mistress of a house, the equivalent of the modern missus. Later readers, unfamiliar with that form of address, took it to mean pious or virtuous. The slang usage is 20th century. From the Los Angeles Times, 30th of May 1924, in a description of a boxing match. The two showed much brotherly affection in the first and second round, thereby bringing a Kansas tornado of yips and catcalls from the angered fans. Hollywood bugs brook no goody two-shoes bouts. And that's also from the Oxford Dictionary and the Historical Dictionary of American Slang. Gathering roses one day He came by my garden
Saying I was drawn by the sweet scent of the roses you tend. Well, that draws episode 23 of Origins to a close. Remember, the show notes can be found at www.origins.info and my other podcast, Bizarre Bizarre. Don't forget, if you like light-hearted sort of news, take a listen. If you can recommend this show to your friends and relatives and other people that you know to help increase its circulation, it would be greatly appreciated. Bye for now. Face roughened of wandering the distant lands But tender was his touch As he admired each rose Deftly he broke Each flower from its stem day as the sun lowered in the winter sky I smiled to see fresh petals blowing across the forgotten path and though I smell the scorch bread burning on the hearth I'll wait here in the lengthening shadows for I know he returns he returns to me Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. 
Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.